0: I have you loud and clear.
1: <laughs> hello. Hello. hello, 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 welcome. welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to
0: say, physics, medicine, nature, space,
2: time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, we're taking a look at the industry that transports 90% of global trade, but most of us know very little about. That's right, we're all at sea in the secret world of shipping.
0: Plus, how testosterone hardens your arteries, are drones getting out of control, and can a spoon in the bottle stop your sparkling wine going flat?
2: I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Kat Arney. And this is The Naked Scientists.
3: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk.
0: First up, heart disease causes one in three deaths worldwide. It's caused when arteries that supply blood to the heart, become narrowed and stiffened, And men seem to be particularly vulnerable to this. Now, new research suggests that the male hormone testosterone might be partly to blame by transforming the muscle cells that are found normally in the walls of arteries into bone cells, which build up calcium and then stiffen the tissue. Vicky McRae led the new study, which was carried out at the University of Edinburgh.
4: So this study shows that testosterone, which is one of the main hormones in men, um, can act on blood vessels and heart valves in the heart to increase the hardening of this tissue. And this is important because um, the hardening of the tissue can be linked to the um, increased likelihood of a patient getting heart disease.
0: So is it fair to say that this does go some way towards explaining why men might be more at risk of heart disease, which they are, than women.
4: Definitely. The hardening of blood vessels has been previously correlated with increased risk of heart disease and it's been shown that men are more susceptible to heart disease. So I think this really fits well with this um, theory.
0: So how did you show that the androgen, the testosterone that men have, makes the vessels harder? What did you actually do?
4: So we used samples from patients who have hardened valves and hardened blood vessels and we studied these. We also looked at cells that we'd taken from the walls of arteries and we put these into dishes in the laboratory and studied these by adding testosterone and other agents that cause the cells to harden in a similar way to that that happens in the patients.
0: Do we understand what actually causes the hardening? Why are things getting hard in the first place?
4: Well, the main difference is you've got your cells in your arteries are actually becoming more bone-like, so they're undergoing this transformation to become more like bone tissues and you actually see molecules that are associated with normal bone development and bone growth turning on in these diseased tissues. So it's the process of the blood vessels actually almost becoming like another tissue which is enabling this process to happen.
0: And the calcium that we associate with the skeleton, does that build up there as well?
4: Yes, so you get a formation of little crystals which are a mix of calcium and phosphate in the blood vessels and in the valves, so calcium plays a very important part in this.
0: And your experiments using the cells in the dish that you then add the testosterone to them, Mm -hmm. that's making those cells become more bone cell-like, is it? That's how they respond?
4: That's right. So when we culture ourselves in a dish, we add phosphate, which mimics the conditions often seen in chronic kidney disease where the the patients have higher levels of phosphate, which causes these cells to change into a more bone-like structure. And then on top of this, when we add the testosterone, this accelerates this effect.
0: But do you understand or have any insights into why the lining of a blood vessel needs to pretend it's a bone? Why should it respond to testosterone in that way?
4: In general, one idea actually is it's a protective mechanism. The tissue is becoming very damaged, the cells are dying, and the um, tissue actually calcifies to almost stop any more degradation happening and to kind of stabilise the area. But at the moment, it's a very understudied area. There's a lot more to find out and a lot more research to do.
0: What are the implications of this, Vicky? Because obviously half the population (laughs) are male, so they're going to have higher levels of testosterone. Mm -hmm. Also, a proportion of the population probably illegally, are using (laughs) anabolic steroids. These are forms of testosterone that are there to bulk up muscles, but are they going to have the same sorts of effect?
4: This research certainly highlights the potential dangers of abusing steroids and the fact that uh, adverse effects of steroids on your cardiovascular health. In terms of preventing this, obviously at the moment there's no real way to prevent vascular calcification or hardening of your arteries. Um, There's no drug to stop this at the moment so the best way forward would be to have a healthier lifestyle or take regular exercise have a good diet Um, at the moment research is still ongoing to try and understand the pathways behind this process and ways that we might be able to stop it from happening
0: and can you reverse it
4: Well, that's really um, the gold standard of the kind of research field that we're into at the moment. So, not at the moment, a lot of studies focus on can you prevent it from happening in a model you know where it will develop, but once it's actually developed, to reverse it is very difficult. Um, So, I think a lot more research needs to be done and a lot more understanding of the pathways to actually yeah to make the bone go away is a very difficult thing indeed. But hopefully, in the future, that would be the aim.
0: And could we use it as a screening test? For instance, are there markers that we could use which tell us, ah, this person's at higher risk of this happening, they're at higher risk of hardening of their arteries and having a heart attack, we need to intervene with other heart-sparing procedures?
4: Definitely. I think it could be um, brought in with a whole range of other, other potential risk factors that you could study. It's possible to image calcification at really high resolution now as well. So you could see tiny specks that might then develop into areas of calcification, which to the naked eye you wouldn't be able to detect as uh, imaging techniques become more and more sophisticated. So this would definitely, could definitely become part of that profile.
2: So, testosterone can harden your arteries as well as your ardour. That was British Heart Foundation researcher Vicky McRae. She published that work this week in the journal Nature Scientific Reports.
0: As more people live into old age, the prevalence of some diseases like dementia has been predicted to rocket. But those suggestions could paint a gloomier picture than the reality. Public health researcher Carol Brain has been looking at similar groups of people in two large studies 20 years apart and she's found that fewer people, and particularly men, are developing the disorder than they were two decades ago.
5: In England, we have found that the incidence of dementia has dropped by around 20% in the population if we look at people aged 65 and over compared with people of 65 and over 20 years ago.
0: Now, why is that a revelation? You're saying that fewer people are developing dementia in that age range now than they did historically, but aren't we all getting healthier?
5: We didn't have any reason to believe that dementia would be one of the disorders that changed as population health changes. The fact is that we didn't know whether dementia is changing in the population. So whilst we can look at heart attack mortality or stroke mortality from routine statistics in many countries, we can't do that with dementia. You have to go out into the population and measure it and see how many people have dementia in a given population and how how many people develop dementia over time in a given population. So you have to do that one time and then in order to test whether it's changing, you have to then repeat that at a sufficiently long interval to see whether it's changed.
0: Where did the initial idea that it was going to be more common, or indeed it was more common 20 years ago, come from?
5: Because of health um, improvements and public health improvements in general, we've had a remarkable extension of life uh, across the globe. And that's continuing now, and it's continuing within the older age groups as well. Governments around the world and in Europe began to be aware that this longevity was going to create perhaps a problem for society, and we ought to be studying it and working out what were the what were the consequences of having a, a much older population. And those consultations led to. Uh, an investment into dementia studies, studies looking at the d- dementia in the population and risk factors and um, what might mitigate dementia in the population and the size of the problem in order to try to plan the services and model into the future.
0: How did you do the study?
5: So 20 years ago we went out to the populations in um, multiple sites and um, recruited them through general practice lists which are whole population lists so it was people aged 65 and over. How many of them? Over 18,000 then. And we interviewed folk with comprehensive interviews from which we can extract a study diagnosis of dementia and we followed people over time. From those sites we selected three, Nottingham, Newcastle and Cambridgeshire and uh, we repeated the same methods as far as we possibly could 20 years later. Critically?
0: Critically. What do you see? When you compare those two groups, you've seen this drop, but if you drill down into the data, what are the trends in there?
5: For the prevalence, both in men and women, the proportion of both sexes who meet the criteria for dementia has dropped.
0: By how much has it gone down?
5: 23%. For the incidence...
0: So these are new cases. Incidence means new cases cropping up in the two years you follow people up afterwards.
5: Yes, exactly. The observed over expected has dropped by 20% and uh, it's almost entirely driven by the drop in men, which is effectively a 40% drop with about a 1% drop in women.
0: That's a huge difference and for such a big bias in the sexes.
5: How do you account for that? Probably because the men don't survive for as long And even once they can develop a condition, don't survive as long. So that if you have um, heart disease uh, or if you have particular conditions, often it's seen that men um, die at an earlier stage.
0: But politicians, David Cameron included, have put dementia at the top of the agenda, saying this is a huge problem and that within the next 50 years we might be facing a third of the population of Western countries who are afflicted. So this flies in the face of these predictions. Could it be a blip? Could it be that the people you're looking at are those people who came through Second World War? They have actually had a very healthy diet. A lot of them, they haven't had all these other risk factors like putting on lots of weight. And actually, my generation coming along next, we're actually going to be the ones that will actually have a a much higher rate of dementia.
5: That may be the case. We're seeing similar changes in other European countries and in the US. And we are seeing effects such as the Flynn effect, which is that IQ is going up across time. And there are factors such as increased education, which is a protective factor. So it is a question of how does each generation experience risks and protective factors Across their life course, you know, do you have a healthy birth? Uh, do you have um, a, an adequate early nutrition to nourish your brain and so on? And do you then have a sufficient physical activity and a good diet, as you said? And then are you exposed to um, a, an environment in which smoking is very common? So all these things probably influence how we age. The fact is that we are still seeing increases in life expectancy We can only know about what's going to happen uh, across time by continuing to um, conduct the kinds of studies that we have just done. That's really, in 10 years' time, it would be sensible. We've only got two time points here, and you really only begin to understand trends when you get three plus.
0: (laughs) Sounds like good news all the same. That was Cambridge University's Carol Brain speaking about the study that she's published this week in Nature Communications.
2: Now, last week, an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport was struck by what the pilot thought was a drone. Or maybe it was a plastic bag, as subsequent reports have suggested. But it's probably only a matter of time before it happens for real. So what exactly are the laws around drone flight? And how much damage could they do? Our resident technology expert Peter Cowley is with us, and he's brought an example with him.
0: Indeed, we're actually outside, so we can have a go at flying this.
6: Okay, so Peter for the benefit of the people at home, what are we watching whiz around the car park? We've got a drone here. It's just a, a little hobby drone that costs about £50, weighs about 120 grams. It's going to hit the ground rather hard. Oh, look at that. I landed just about okay. A drone is a small unmanned aircraft that doesn't weigh very much. Obviously, at this size, it's just for something to play with. It could have a camera on it or not, so if somebody wanted to look at it. They, they can be very small, as, as small as just a few grams. In fact, there's one out there that's only one cubic centimetre. It costs you about you didn't pounds.
0: distinguish yourself with your flight path there, but are, are they actually relatively easy to fly
6: no (laughs) definitely not I got this yesterday I spent about half an hour trying to work out how to fly it in in my garden and now we're out in the car park with more room I should get it better but there's a bit of wind here and it's not easy to fly at all now it might be because I'm old and perhaps if I gave it to one of my children it would work fine
0: (laughs) Now, the question of whether or not they can interfere with the flight paths of aeroplanes, can they go high enough to do that kind of thing?
6: This one, not, because this has got a range of about 60, 70 metres from the controller, and then it won't go any further. There is a, I think it's a global limit of 400 feet, 120 or so metres, which you can't fly anywhere in any country. But if you had a bigger drone that costs maybe £1,000, you'd probably get that up to 1,000 metres or more. So then it would be, in, A, illegal in the flight path.
0: And could it physically do damage? If something of that sort of stature hit an aeroplane,
6: would it damage it? This 120-gram one, very unlikely. I can't imagine that would do anything. You'd have hit an, uh, you know, one of the props. And you don't have to have a licence in the UK until it weighs 20 kilos. So let's imagine a 19-kilo drone hitting a small aircraft, almost certainly. Hitting a large aircraft like a jumbo? Probably not, actually. I mean, the, the, tr- the jet engines will actually... They're tested with fr- deep-frozen turkeys going through them, i.e. a bird at high altitude, and that's fine. So it should be okay, I, I would hope. Apart from
0: hobby purposes, what are people exploring these in terms of industrial or other applications? What are people trying to do with them, with drones?
6: a lot of positive things. So it'd be great when legislation and uh, society will be used to using them. So things like journalism, movies, aerial surveying, planning, uh, conservation, anti-poaching, etc., archaeology, cargo possibly, you've seen the Amazon talking about that, obviously law enforcement, search and rescue in the hills, surveillance. There's loads of positive things. Now the negative things, of course, are crime, moving drugs around, spying, potentially bombing, and then, depending on one's view about military or not, that could be classed as negative or positive
0: you invest in emerging technologies have you got any investments in this sector
6: i do i've just agreed to invest in a company that will allow multiple drones to fly simultaneously it's for surveillance reasons initially so that when the drone is running out of battery it'll come back in again another one will go out so the coverage and they also have a project potentially with landmines so actually trying to find landmines
0: so people are literally putting their money where their mouth is and it's quite big business
6: It will be very big business, but it does need sorting out because, I mean, there's a lot of negative press should the drones be doing the wrong thing.
0: Um, what about the legislation about this? Where are we? Where do we stand in terms of the, what the law says we can and can't do
6: at the moment? Well, there's two issues here. Security as in for crime, privacy as in consumers, and also safety. Because if one of these things, if that thing hits us on the head, it would be quite unpleasant. But if it weighed 19 kilos... <laughs> so the rules in the UK, they vary a bit around the world, but the rules basically are you it must be line of sight. It must be more than 500 metres from where you are. It must not be any higher than 400 feet. And it mustn't be any closer than 50 metres metres from a building, if it's got a camera on board, and that goes up to 150 metres if it's hovering over a crowd, say at a, a pop concert or whatever.
0: Now, to finish off, Peter, shall we have another go and we'll test your piloting skills, or better still, can I have a go?
6: Okay, this one, here's the throttle. I'm holding something that
0: looks a bit like the controller for, say, an Xbox or a computer game. Correct. So this one on the left, this knob on the left is That's the throttle. That's throttle, yeah, and the
6: right. right one is turn left and right. Alright, here
0: we go, I'm going up in the air,
6: and I'm just going to go right and, and left. Going to... Oh yeah, you're... Oh, you're doing a lot better than...
0: Yeah, let's see how high it goes
7: now,
6: Peter. I'm going to try and put it onto the Are you, the building, are you okay. going to replace this? <laughs> <laughs> this is my 50 pounds. <laughs> it's okay, got up I'm, to it's about... It's almost out of sight. Yeah, <laughs> 10, 15 metres. Out. I must say, you're a complete natural. You must have done this before. There's too, there's
0: too many computer games, Peter. That's what it is. I'm going to try and bring this thing down. Down
6: without breaking the legs. So
0: just give it a little Brilliant. bit more oomph just to get it a really
6: gentle... D- there we go. Oh. oh, it's bouncing a bit. Oh, battery compartment's come open. <laughs> And that we have touchdown.
0: Brilliant. There you go.
6: Well
2: done, Chris. <laughs> First time. Clearly, a wasted childhood there for Chris. I think he's been playing far too many computer games. I don't think I'd know where to start flying a drone around. And that was with Peter Cowley in the car park. <laughs>
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Now, we have a favour to ask you this week because we are contenders for the podcast awards. We need your nominations, though. It's very simple to do this, and we've put together an article on our website to explain how. You go to nakedscientist.com slash nominate... And there are clear sets of instructions to follow there as to which category. It's the science and medicine category and how to do it. You'll need the podcast address on the internet, which we've also put on that page. So it should just be easy to cut and paste. And then you put in your details and hit submit. And if we get enough nominations, then we'll end up in the voting. That's what we'd like. If you can help us, we'd be really grateful.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Still to come, driverless ships. We explore the next revolution in the shipping industry. But now it's time for this week's Myth Conception, where we take dodgy science to task. And this week, I've been breaking out the bubbly. Now, it's no secret that I am a fan of the finer things in life, including champagne or carver or Prosecco, or even that weird fizzy stuff that might not even be made of grapes at all. And perhaps so is our listener Elizabeth from South Africa, as she's emailed in to ask us to investigate whether hanging a metal spoon, particularly a silver one, in the neck of a bottle of open sparkling wine will stop it from going flat. Now, I'll just start by saying right now, I was unable to test this personally, as I'm incapable of leaving any champagne in the bottle. But in the unlikely event that you have any fizz left in there, will popping a spoon in the top help? According to Stanford University chemistry professor Richard Zare, who has actually looked into this problem scientifically over the past 20 years, as well as the TV show Mythbusters, a spoon in the neck of the bottle will do nothing to keep the fizz in. Back in 1994, Zare put the idea to the test with a panel of eight amateur testers, including his wife and some lucky colleagues. In a blind test, they slurped their way through samples from five pairs of temperature-controlled bottles of sparkling wine, which had been treated in various ways. Opening the bottle just before the test, opening it the day before and either leaving it uncorked or putting a cork back in, or opening it the day before and putting either a silver or a stainless steel spoon into the neck. Weirdly, they found that while the spoons did nothing to help the booze keep its fizz, they actually found that recorking it made matters even worse, although other experts suggest that this is actually the best way to trap the bubbles in your bubbly. And Zerr himself notes that the tester's judgement may have become slightly impaired after a while. There's also a good scientific explanation as to why a spoon in the top of an open bottle won't help and why a cork in the top might. The bubbles in sparkling wine are carbon dioxide, produced by yeast feasting on the sugars in the drink as they ferment it. As long as the bottle is corked, they're trapped in the liquid. But as soon as that familiar pop happens, my favourite sound, they all come rushing out. And because there's a lower concentration of carbon dioxide in the air outside the bottle than inside, it'll tend to rush out, leaving your fizz flat. But if you've managed to inexplicably end up with leftover champagne that you'd like to drink another day, is there anything you can do to keep your fizzy busy? Well, the main piece of advice is to keep it cold. The lower the temperature, the less likely the carbon dioxide gas is to come out of solution and escape. So pop your bottle back in the fridge or on ice at every opportunity. You could also try and recork it, but please do be very careful and be sure to use a specific champagne stopper rather than any old cork as the build-up of carbon dioxide gas could shoot it out and cause a nasty injury. To avoid that, just as our listeners have a thirst for knowledge, the best thing to do is have a thirst for champagne too and make sure you polish off the bottle or just send it over to me
0: but do, of course, drink it responsibly, cat. Now, if you at home have got a myth that you'd like cat to probe for you, please do email it in. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, talking of drinking things, research out this week suggests that many of us who think we're lactose intolerant, and that's about two-thirds of the world's population, may in fact have it wrong, and you could be missing out on some important dietary nutrients for no reason. But what does this actually mean? Well, Georgia Mills has been investigating, but first wanted to find out a little bit more about humanity's history with milk.
8: Milk has a very important part to play in growing up. All mammals rely on it when they're first born. It provides them with rich nutrients from their mother. Babies can digest this milk easily as they produce an enzyme called lactase, which can break down the sugar in milk, which is called lactose. Then, as you grow up, most animals stop producing this enzyme, meaning if you drink milk, it can cause digestive problems. This is what's known as lactose intolerance. But plenty of people drink milk without any trouble. So what makes us so different? To find out, I spoke to Mark Thomas, Professor of Evolutionary Genetics at UCL, about the story of when we first started drinking milk, which was around 7,000 years ago, shortly after we'd started farming cattle. And a single mutation happened in our DNA, which meant we produced this enzyme into later life.
9: And what's more extraordinary is that it spread very quickly. Now... A new genetic variant, they, can, they arise all the time. And they can spread a little bit, but this one spreads so fast that it cannot be explained just by chance. It requires an extra kick, and that kick is, of course, very, very strong natural selection.
8: How strong are we talking here?
9: Breathtakingly strong. So it's probably the most strongly selected single genetic trait that's evolved at least in Europeans in the last 10,000 years and that's also the case in some African and Middle Eastern populations who also continue to produce this enzyme throughout their adult life.
8: What's going on here? Why is this such an advantage to be able to digest the sugar in milk?
9: I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) We have lots of ideas but to my mind, there isn't a single explanation that explains those unbelievably massive selective advantages.
8: What are some of the ideas we've got for
9: starters? OK, so the oldest one is related to the whole story of calcium and vitamin D. Most people in the world get most of their vitamin D not from food, but from the action of sunlight on the skin. Now, you need vitamin D to absorb calcium, and we all know that calcium is a good idea for bones and various other things. The problem is that if you're at high latitude, then for most of the year, you actually don't get enough sunlight to make decent amounts of vitamin D. They have a problem, and that problem gets a lot worse around 10,000 years ago. That's the period when we switched over to farming. Prior to that, we were hunter-gatherers. Now, hunter-gatherers, they do get decent amounts of vitamin D, especially if they're eating a lot of fish. But now these early farmers, they switched over to mostly cereals, and cereals are very, very poor in vitamin D. So the argument goes that milk, which has got some vitamin D and lots and lots of calcium, somehow supplemented their diet and it gave them an advantage, but that advantage was only there if they could drink it comfortably. And so... Evolving the ability to drink milk comfortably by being able to digest the sugar in it enable people to drink more milk and therefore to supplement their vitamin D requirements. Now the problem with that theory is we also see strong selection for continuing to produce lactase throughout adult life. We see strong selection for it in the Middle East, in Africa and in Southern Europe where they definitely have enough sunlight to make enough vitamin D.
8: What other theories are there that might be able to explain that?
9: Well, another one is that milk is actually a relatively good source of uncontaminated fluid. Milk is relatively parasite-free, and so one idea is that it was a much cleaner fluid. And that idea may well be important, and I would suspect is more important in arid regions, so in desert regions or in regions that don't have much water. So
8: for whatever reason, it seems drinking milk gave you the evolutionary edge in many parts of the world. But not everyone can drink milk. In fact, one in five people in the UK say they're lactose intolerant. But research from China this week suggests it may be something else entirely people are reacting to, which could mean they're cutting dairy out of their diets for no reason at all. Dr Anton Emmanuel is Senior Lecturer in Neurogastroenterology at UCL, and he has been looking into the research.
3: The background to this is that a lot of people feel that they can't tolerate milk products and they label themselves as being lactose intolerant. And what we find when we formally test for that is that a lot of people aren't. And what this study does is to illustrate something which there is something else in milk other than lactose. There's lots of things in milk, but one of those things could be a particular protein which can cause problems. What's this protein? So the protein is something called the A2 protein. It's part of a protein called casein, and that protein is something which some people can digest perfectly and some people probably don't digest as well.
8: And so some people not digesting this might just identify themselves as lactose intolerant when actually it's something else going on.
3: Yes, there's many things in milk, as we say, and one of those things could be this protein, which could be the thing that's causing problems. And when that is not digested properly, that can result in very similar symptoms to typical lactose intolerance, so things like diarrhoea and rumbly tummies. And, and so it's easy to see why people can readily mistake the two.
8: Okay, so how did the study try and separate these two problems?
3: There are is a variant of cows which can produce this uh, casein in a form which is not a problem to digest and that's the so-called A2 type products and what this study does then is to expose patients to either a normal milk, so-called A1 milk, or this milk which has just got the A2 protein in it and it did this in a so-called crossover design so that patients unbeknownst to themselves had one or the other in random random order, and then had the various measurements and symptoms quantified after each exposure.
8: What did they find?
3: What they found was that there is a cohort of this patient group who can tolerate uh, the milk fine. And if they were exposed to normal milk, in other words, when they took A2 milk, they were fine. But when they took A1 milk, they had the symptoms of diarrhea and rumbling tummies. And they had objective measurements of uh, rapidity of movement through their gut. And their sort of so-called cognitive state, in other words, the way their brain processes things quickly, that was impaired when they took the, the A1 milk, but not with the A2 milk.
2: Important stuff. That's Anton Emmanuel, and before him, Dr Mark Thomas. That research was published this week in the Nutrition Journal.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We have a Facebook page. You can find that on Facebook or you can tweet at Naked Scientists.
2: Now on to the main part of the show, and this week we're immersing ourselves in an industry that impacts all of our lives, but few of us ever encounter, the world of shipping.
0: Now here to help us launch this ship of a show is Rose George. She's the author of the book Deep Sea and Foreign Going, and she spent five weeks on a container ship. Rose, where did it take you? Where did you go?
10: I departed from Felixstowe on a Friday, which is traditionally bad luck. Also, being a woman on a ship is bad luck, so uh, it was a really good start. And we travelled to Singapore over 39 days, calling in at a few ports in Europe, then going down uh, the Suez Canal through the what was then known as the high-risk area because it was infested with Somali pirates, then down the coast, calling in at Sri Lanka, and then finally I disembarked at Singapore very reluctantly.
0: Oh, you're obviously enjoying yourself then. So, what was the sort of stature and scale of this ship? Just paint a picture of, of it for us.
10: Well, when I was standing on the um, on the quay at Felixstowe, I was looking up at this ship and thinking it's absolutely enormous. Um, but my journey was in 2010. Even then, it was just a midsize ship. She carried about uh, seven thousand TEUs, which is a twenty-foot equivalent unit, which is uh, what most of us would know as a container. Um, a shorter container than you're probably used to seeing on the back of trucks on motorways. But now, I mean, she would be considered tiny because shipping has grown in stature even, and the ships have grown in stature even since I went to sea. But uh, she was a pretty new ship, about four years old, called Maersk Kendall. Um, and I grew very, very fond of her, although she's been renamed and reflagged, which is, (laughs) we can talk about that because that's what happens in shipping. So she no longer really exists.
0: The SI unit of sizes of things appears to be football fields. Could you play football on the deck of that ship just to give people an idea as to how big this thing is?
10: It was 300 metres long.
0: So pretty big then. Now, in terms of the sort of amount of cargo that moves around the world, what, what proportion of the world's cargo movements is shipping and how much stuff gets moved by sea every year?
10: We rely on shipping to bring us... Only about 95% of everything. Other countries, it can vary, but generally worldwide, it's 90% of everything. 90% of world trade travels by ship. And um, when I was looking into doing this book and researching the book, and I asked my peers and my friends and, and people on Twitter, and how much stuff do you think travels by ship? And the answers were just wrong. All of them were wrong. So it was 20%, 30%, 40%. And the trouble with shipping is that it's it's so efficient that people have kind of lost sight of it. And there are other reasons we've lost sight of it as well. But it just comes and goes every day, 80,000 to 100,000 ships, bringing us all this trade from the other side of the world very cheaply, very efficiently. And by people who we don't tend to encounter anymore because the the role of seafarer, is now taken by countries in the developing world usually. Uh, And so we don't tend to encounter working seafarers in the industrialised world anymore.
0: And are those people treated as well as someone who would expect employment law to be implemented (laughs) in terms of what we would define, good employment?
10: Well, it varies. To give you one statistic, the International Transport Workers' Federation, which is the main seafarer union, every year has to claw back $30 million in money that should have been paid in wages to seafarers but isn't. So the thing is with shipping is because of how it's made up and because 60% of ships now fly what's called a flag of an open registry or a flag of convenience, and what that means is once you're out on the high seas, then the ship is governed by the state that operates that flag. And you can switch flags very easily, and some flags are better than others. And they control labour laws and and, um, wage levels. And so if you want to be unscrupulous and operate or ownership, it's quite easy to be that. Luckily, most people aren't, but there is still a lot to be cleaned up in shipping and not just welfare standards. That said, there is a law which came into force a couple of years ago, which has been called the Magna Carta for seafarers. And it's hopefully going to change things. But it's such a disparate and vast and, and wide industry with so many um, nationalities involved and ships going through jurisdictions and having a flag from one country, an operator from another, an owner from another, crew from yet more and, and boxes from all over the world. There's, there's really no industry like it.
0: Doesn't sound like it. What are the other problems with shipping? We often uh, dwell on things like climate change and greenhouse gas emissions when we're talking about sort of land-based movements. What's the equivalent for shipping? Are are they well regulated? Is it well monitored?
10: People often talk about something called the lawless ocean or the lawless sea. And I usually say there's plenty of laws uh, regulating the high seas, The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, which is the agency which oversees global shipping, it's constantly giving new regulations and, and new laws. The trouble is is enforcement, and that's where a lot of the problems arise. Because of, again, the very disparate, multinational and mobile nature of shipping, it can be very difficult to enforce something.
0: Now, you mentioned you were very sad to get off your boat when you had to depart in Singapore. So what's your most memorable experience?
10: It was probably when we hit the pirate area and suddenly the ship changed and somebody had gone around and cut out cardboard boxes from the bond store so the kind of tuck shop so suddenly all the all the portholes and the windows were covered with pictures of rosy apples or benson and hedges cigarette (laughs) and cartons or um and that really um really changed the mood on the ship
0: i bet it did thank you i bet it was a really eye-opening journey as well thank you journalist and author rose george
2: and i do thoroughly recommend her book deep sea and foreign go and it's fantastic as Rose mentioned, one of the big problems for shipping currently is the welfare of the workers on board some of these ships. To deal with it, we could, of course, improve legislation, but a more radical move might be to take people off ships altogether, and it might also save money. The idea of driverless ships might sound far-fetched, but it's something that UK-based multinational specialist engineering giants Rolls-Royce are actively developing. Connie Orback went to meet the team in Helsinki, Finland, where the work is taking place.
11: That is the sound of a ferry pulling into Helsinki harbour. And of course there's staff driving and operating the ship. But what if there weren't? Let us take you on a journey to this same port 30 years from now, where huge unmanned ships come to dock.
12: First of all, we we can imagine that, uh, especially the cargo vessels, they will be fully unmanned.
11: That's Oscar Lavander, leading the charge into the future as vice president of innovation in Rolls-Royce's marine division.
12: Operating mainly autonomously with also a little bit of remote control. Especially in port, they will be supervised by some shore-based central, and otherwise when they go out to sea, they are driving by themselves automatically.
11: These ships then, the fully automated ones, would look a bit different. There'd be none of the usual infrastructure that is put in for people. No mess house, kitchen, sewage works or aircon, just a solid body for carrying cargo. But on shore, things would change too, as some operation of these ships would be remote from a control centre.
12: You could have a control centre here, or actually the control centre might be on the other side of the earth. You never know, that, that's the beauty. If it was night time here, you might uh, want to operate the ship uh, from uh, other time zone where it's daytime, so that nobody had to work during night times.
11: Why do we need to do this, Oscar? We've got some lovely boats out here. They all seem to be going on all right. Why do we need to make this change?
12: The main driver for this really lies in the economics. This is all about making shipping more efficient and at the same time safer. If we go towards unmanned ships, the cost of transporting one tonne of cargo, one nautical mile, will drop more than 20% just by going unmanned.
11: Well, that all sounds pretty tempting, but how feasible is this? And what do we need to do to get there? A ship sets sail for America, but there's no one on board. So how does it find its way without any eyes? Well, there's a technological equivalent. As leader of the technology research, Yoni Poikinon from the University of Turku explains...
13: Basically, we need technology to perceive the surroundings of the ship. We need different kinds of sensors to guarantee that we can operate in all different kinds of weather conditions and even different kinds of situations. Because, for example, cameras don't work in the dark or don't work in bad weather conditions, and they don't give distance to the targets, whereas radar gives distance that works in any condition, but you cannot really recognize uh, the objects from the radar data. So you have to combine both the best uh, properties of different types of sensors.
11: With its huge number of sensors combined to make one almighty super eyeball, my boat can now see everything. But there's something ahead. What is it? And how does our ship know what to do? Divert? Mow on forward? What? Here's co-lead Tampa University of Technology's Mika Huvenon.
13: We first of course need to classify what they are and we need to recognize where they are based on the maritime rules. So how we need to react.
11: The data is all collected in and based on many past experiences and thousands and thousands of photos, an algorithm matches it to boy or whale.
13: How we need to react then defines the method we select. And those methods are already available. Those algorithms, of course, they they are in aviation and also uh, autonomous cars. And uh, when the situation is defined, you need to react like this, then you need to ask permission from the ship intelligence
11: okay that sounded fairly straightforward just follow the algorithms and loads of this stuff has already been developed for cars so it's just a case of repurposing but then again a little car on a road seems like a bit of a different beast to a massive great container ship in the middle of the ocean Yoni again
13: the most crucial thing is reliability and reliability under every weather condition and every situation. This is something that hasn't been really demonstrated in the automobile side. On the sea, it's even worse because the conditions are usually worse than on the highway. On the other hand, because the number of ships will in any case be much smaller than the number of cars, we can also apply the connection to a remote control center which can monitor the ship and aid it if, if it cannot perform by itself. I see that this is something that cannot be really done in cars. You cannot have a control centre for millions or billions of cars, but you can have that for ships. So in some cases, it might be easier to implement this in the short term, at least in the marine side, than for cars.
11: That's the technology side of an automated ship sorted then. There's still a lot of work, but it's mainly fine-tuning. But back to Oscar. I can imagine there are a few other things we're going to need to consider.
12: We also need to have a legal framework, so... If we want to make these ships reality, we need to define the rules, so to speak, that, that apply to them. And, and uh, the thing is, with today's rules, they are not always written in a way that see the possibility of unmanned operations. So we need to clarify the regulation and the law, and also the liability. Is it normal marine liability for these ships, or will it more shift towards of a, a product liability case?
11: A similar thing needs to be overcome for automated cars as well.
12: Exactly. Similar problems uh, or or topic, but of course the challenges are a little bit different.
11: And I guess when people think about this, they're going to be slightly worried about the safety as well. I mean, it sounds a bit scary having all these giant automated ships (laughs) running around the world with no one to control them.
12: I would actually say the opposite. These ships will be safer than today's ships. And actually bringing better technology and uh, creating a better situational awareness and adding some automation on top of that will improve the the safety of vessels. We need to remember that today most marine accidents are related to human errors. That would be between 75 and 96%, depending a little bit on which study you look at. And a big part of these human errors are basically due to fatigue or just the crew not being concentrated. So we can basically improve the safety because we need to remember a machine does not get tired. That's the beauty of it.
0: It's intriguing, isn't it? We look forward to 2020 and beyond. That was Oscar Levander and before him Jonny Poikonen and Mika Hovenen, who all work on Rolls-Royce's Advanced Autonomous Waterborne Applications Initiative, which is set to see their first partially remote-controlled vessel in the water by the end of this decade.
1: grayer here from naked astronomy i wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast it's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit what's out there how did it all begin and what will happen in the end presented and produced by yours truly you can find it on most podcasting platforms just
2: search naked astronomy You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and him, Chris Smith.
0: This week we've set a course to chart the future of shipping and we've already heard about life afloat and why automated ships that don't need humans on board are going to be cheaper and safer. Still to come, the entrepreneurial rum traders who are seeking to return to the good old days of sale. But first, what about the environmental impact of the shipping industry?
2: Well, it is pretty significant. Global shipping currently has the same size carbon footprint as the whole of Germany. And the International Maritime Organization, or IMO for short, has predicted that this figure will rise by up to 250% by 2050. At a recent meeting of their Marine Environment Protection Committee in London, the IMO failed to reach agreement on a plan to curb future emissions. All the same, what can we do to make our boats greener? Professor Sandy Day is Professor of Marine Hydrodynamics in the Naval Architecture, Ocean and Marine Engineering Department at Strathclyde University. He's here to take us through it. Hi, Sandy. So how efficient are these big, ocean-going cargo ships?
7: Well, as Rose already said, the ships are already very, very efficient. They're a very, very efficient way of moving large amounts of uh, material around the world uh, relatively slowly, so if you want to make ships better, most likely you're not going to get a 50% improvement. But what you can hope to do is to get a few 5%, maybe 6 7% improvements and maybe add a few of these together. And with that, you may be able to make some substantial inroads. It's the sort of every little helps approach to it. Aggregation of marginal gains, uh, the, some of the sporting people call it.
2: So how can we do this? How are some of the ways that that you and other people are looking at to make ships more efficient?
7: The most obvious thing you can do is try and reduce the drag of the ship, how much force you have to apply to it to push it through the water. And there's a number of ways that you can do that. Uh, One of the things that you can do is try and reduce the friction between the, the hull and the water. And you can try and do that by making the ship surface smoother, particularly by stopping marine fouling. If you get heavy growth of something like barnacles on the boat, that can add 10, certainly 12% to the, to the drag. And that can grow quite quickly, especially if you're in warm waters. So improving paint coatings so that the barnacles build up more slowly can make a significant difference to the environmental impact of the ship and, and the energy efficiency.
2: What about when we see things like Olympic swimmers? They have these special suits that enable them to move through the water that are based on things like shark skin. Could, could a boat be built like that?
7: Well, in, in principle, yes, it could. Uh, and if you look at the very highest levels of sort of competition, if you look at things like the America's Cup yacht races, people have explored some of these sort of textured surfaces, nano surfaces, some of these things. But on a ship, the, the problem is that, first of all, the environment's uh, pretty harsh. You know, you, You've got to be out at sea for extended periods between cleaning. And the ship's just very, very big. 300 metres long, maybe, I don't know, 40 metres on the beam, maybe 10 metres in the draft. You're talking about thousands of square metres. And these high-tech coatings are generally expensive and generally quite sensitive to dirt. So it's not something you're expecting to see on a large ship. And
2: what about things like the actual, the engines, the propellers, even the fuel that's being used? Are there any things that can be done to make that more efficient?
7: For the propulsion systems, yes, there's there's lots you can do with the propellers. You can improve the flow into the propeller. You can try and extract some of the wasted energy in the flow behind the propeller, try and improve the interaction between the propeller and the rudder. So there's there's lots of things you can do with the hydrodynamics, the flow of water around the propeller. Again, most of these things you'd be expecting single-digit improvements. Of course, it depends where you start. If you've got a very old ship with a very poor propeller, you'd be expected to get a better improvement.
2: So given that there are all these ways that we could make shipping more efficient, what is the motivation, what's the encouragement for the people that own ships, the people that run ships to actually do any of it?
7: Well, of course, the the main motivation is to save money because if you make ships more efficient, you spend less money on fuel. And uh, big shipping companies can spend a billion dollars or more a year on fuel. Even a, a relatively small percentage change can, can make a big difference. But one of the problems is that people don't typically own a ship for 25 years and then scrap it at the end, people generally operate ships for fairly limited times. That means that if you want to invest some money in energy saving, you have to pay that money back quite quickly, which means typically you're looking for quite big gains and that can be difficult.
2: Are there things that people could do, maybe sort of rerouting shipping routes to make them more efficient?
7: Absolutely. There's, there's a number of operational things you can do. There's a lot of work going on, people trying to improve weather routing uh, so that you can try and avoid storms, that you can avoid adverse wind, for example, and big waves, because that tends to use up a lot more energy in the ship. It sounds like that
2: there's quite a lot of complexity in this, you know, you've got to get your ship working as efficiently as possible, you've got to get shipping as a business working as effectively as possible. And then what about the role of legislation? And we've talked about the International Maritime Organization. Is there anything that the law can do to try and improve efficiency?
7: As Rose mentioned earlier, that shipping is governed by the IMO, or the International Maritime Organization, which which is essentially a UN agency. Uh, And... It's difficult to to make a big change for existing ships, but what they've done is they've legislated for new ships, and they've used a, a, an energy efficiency standard, which is called the EEDI, or the Energy Efficiency Design Index. And what that does is it, it's a formula that estimates in a bit of a simple way how much CO2 is generated by a ship to carry any, any given tonne of cargo one mile. The idea of this is that there are prescribed target values for different ship types and different ship sizes, which you have to meet when you build, you design and build a new ship. And those target values are going to get more challenging over, over time. And the intention is that by 2025, that any given ship will have 30% less CO2 emissions compared to a, a typical ship which existed between 2000 and 2010. So there, there is some legislative push there.
2: This all seems like quite long term sort of slow moving stuff. Is there hope that there can be any immediate or quick efficiency changes to be made? because you know we've had the the Paris agreement, climate change is something that people are very concerned about, and it feels like now, 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 now is the time
7: yes yeah, it's, it's very difficult with ships because first of all, you've got this huge stock of existing ships, and you, even if somebody invented some fantastic new ship which did have some enormous uh, improvement it would take many, many years to replace the existing ship stock. But the other problem is basically a political problem. It's very difficult to get agreement between uh, the 171 members of the IMO. So there's quite a lot of inertia in the system. Things tend to unfortunately happen rather more slowly than you might like.
2: Uh, Just like boats going across the ocean. Thank you very much. That's Professor Sandy Day from Strathclyde University.
0: So it seems that in the world of shipping, there's not going to be any huge green revolution. But aren't we possibly missing a trick here? Because ships were around long before the Industrial Revolution came along, and they managed to make it all around the world without burning any fuel. That's because they used the power of the wind. So could, paradoxically, the future of shipping lie in its past? Connie met with one entrepreneur who certainly thinks so.
14: My name is Alex Golden
11: and I am a rum broker currently. That's such an exciting title. <laughs> Alex is founder of New Dawn Traders, a company whose motto is Fair Trade by Sale. We work with a
14: sailing ship, an engineless sailing ship called the Tres Hombres. It's a square rig brigantine about seventy-five foot long. It's been working for the last seven years sailing across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and back, bringing cocoa, rum and coffee. We import some of those barrels of rum and cocoa beans into Cornwall, where we make chocolate and bottle our rum. And I'm now taking that to market.
11: Now, of course, there was a certain amount of energy required to build the ship in the first place, and there's transport to either end, food for the crew, etc. But by using a ship with no engine at all, Alex and her team get about as close as possible to zero-emission cargo transport. So, Alex, tell me a bit more about this boat. It's not that old. The Hull was built in the 40s. It's a German
14: minesweeper, and um, the rig was actually designed um, afterwards during the refit, but designed according to the old-fashioned square rig brigantines. Um, So she's incredibly efficient, actually, and she's built to travel with the trade winds, which is what has traditionally carried ships across the Atlantic
11: for hundreds if not more years the term trade winds refers to the pattern of winds from the tropical high pressure belts in the north and southeast of the globe to the low pressure zone at the equator they can take you from africa to the americas and from there on to asia with these winds at your back you're on to a winner but move against them and you're well a little stuck
14: yeah completely i mean the sailing technology is obviously designed to work um with the winds um And square rigs are specifically designed to take on the full force of the trade winds, which carry the ships across the ocean. Um, But within that, we're quite maneuverable. But obviously, if we hit the doldrums, then we have to sit and wait. And I bet that causes havoc
11: with your speed.
14: Well, we work out her schedule at four knots per, at four knots. Um, But she actually does a lot better than that, averaging around six to eight, and then in strong winds, even up to 12 knots.
11: So how does that compare to a motorised boat, a boat with an engine? Well, it's totally different.
14: (laughs) A boat, a cargo ship, a container ship can go about 20 knots. So
11: it's a real steamer. That definitely does sound like a bit of a drawback to me. Perhaps sailing boats just don't have the power of those with engines.
14: Actually, the um, last of the the sort of commercial sailing cargo ships, the clippers, and um, they could match that speed of about twenty knots on average. Um, and that's actually what inspired the Tres Hombres, the three guys that the boat's named after, to look at sailing cargo again. The potential's there. But um, as we're working with with this concept, we're constantly reevaluating
11: how we um, how we approach it. Okay, yes. A sailing boat can go pretty fast when it needs to. But you're still fairly controlled by these trade winds, making some parts of the globe pretty much a no-go. Unless, of course, you want to take the long way round. So why go back to the bad old days? Well, I guess the
14: I guess we're reaching bursting point in this bubble of having everything immediately for absolutely no cost at all because it's not true to uh, the nature of how the planet works. Um, these ships are highly polluting and regardless of even how polluting the ships are, it's what they carry in them which causes a huge impact on the environment as well. So we are really looking at the entire supply chain and rethinking every single step of it and building a parallel system that even on this small scale might not have a big impact globally. It can, um, We can experiment with a way of of really zero compromise and um, so we're finding the highest quality products uh, transporting them in the most sort of eco-friendly way and also thinking about how we take that to market and um, to create a complete system that's as good as it possibly can be.
2: Wonderful stuff. I would love to be a rum trader sailing my way around the world. We will have to see if their business model is successful. That's Alex Goldenhays from New Dawn Traders. And thank you to our other contributors this week. That's Rose George, Oscar Levender, Jono Poikkonen, Mika Hoevenen and Sandy Day. And finally, it is time for our question of the week. Greer Jackson's been contemplating this uplifting question.
3: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega.
15: I recall once watching a programme about elevators, which inferred that there was almost no restriction in the speed that an elevator could ascend for the human body, but there was a limiting speed for the descent. Is this true?
1: Well Paul lucky for you I know an engineer at Cambridge University who knows a thing or two about lifts meet Dr Philip Garset
15: A typical express lift can travel at speeds of up to 22 miles an hour although this year we'll see the first high speed lifts capable of travelling at over 40 miles an hour
1: Now what confuses me is that trains can travel at up to 360 miles per hour lifts go at a measly 22 miles an hour on average, I wanted to know why elevator engineers haven't quite cracked this nut. So come on, Philip, explain yourself.
15: The main difference with a lift is that it goes up and down. Because the Earth's atmosphere gets thinner as you go higher, a person in a lift experiences a change in air pressure as they travel. On a fast lift, this change is rapid enough to cause noticeable pressure differences in the body. One of the most sensitive parts of the body to changes in pressure is the ear. This is because the inner ear is quite well sealed, and air has to travel along a thin tube, known as the eustachian tube, to leave or enter. As a result, it can take a while for a change in pressure to equalise across the eardrum. And a pressure difference across the eardrum causes it to bulge, and that's uncomfortable at best, and can even be a painful experience. It just so happens that this pressure equalisation works better if you're ascending rather than descending. And this is because the walls of this eustachian tube are a little bit floppy, a bit like the neck of a balloon. Air comes out easily when it's inflated, but it's a lot more difficult to get air in and If you've been in a plane, you'll probably have noticed that landing is much more painful on the ears than takeoff, even though the aircraft descends much faster than it descends
1: and it's the same with lifts; they can go fast on the way up, but have to go slower on the way down.. Oh, The
15: maximum speed of ascent and descent is set by how much pain the passengers can reasonably bear. Lift manufacturers can get around the problem a bit by pressurising the lift. But even so, the new and fancy 40 mile an hour lifts can only go up the building at that speed. They come down at a much more sedate 22 miles an hour. So, yes, you're right. A lift does have different limits on its speed, depending on whether it's going up or down. But it's our biology that prevents us going faster, not our engineering. Opening.
1: Cambridge's Dr Philip Garsard to the rescue. Thank you very much. No doubt next time we'll be getting all spaced out with Jeff's question.
7: If we received an encrypted message from space, would we be able to recognise it and if so, understand it?
2: Depends if it's from a space doctor, in which case you probably can't read their handwriting at all. Um, stereotype, doctor joke. If you have any answers to that question, you can send them in to chris at scientistcom You can tweet us at Naked Scientists or get involved in our forum. That's scientists.com slash forum. And
0: that's is it. Thank you very much to everyone who has been involved and thank you also to Connie Allback for producing the programme. We're back next week when we're all going to be in handcuffs, not for kinky reasons, but to find out how science is at work in the criminal justice system. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye.